So we're going to be continuing. I'm going to start my timer. We're going to be continuing our, uh, our, my sermon that I was given last week on the woman at the well or the woman of Samaria. So this is part two. Uh, and so this week I actually got my slide. There wasn't any water damage. So we, we have some good, uh, good images, and uh, some of them are just me being a nerd, which Emily already commented on, which made me laugh very, very hard. But uh, my sources that I'm using for today's uh, sermon is my NRSV uh, study Bible. So the commentary that's written there, and then my new interpreter's Bible, which is a phenomenal commentary on Luke and John. Uh, I, I would love to have this series, but it's really expensive, so like every year I get like one, like and add it to the collection. Um, but yeah, so we're going to be finishing on um, the woman of Samaria, and so this is going to be John chapter 4, verses 4 through 42. So as we've been looking in our um, Bible study, we do that every, or Sunday school, uh, every Sunday um, at 9 in the morning, uh, we've been talking about this word hermeneutic, um, and pretty much it's interpretation, the context, what are we using, so when we go to any book, whether it be John, Luke, Acts, whatever book we're looking at, um, how are we interpreting this? You know, for instance, like Psalms, they're about songs and poetry and things like that. You're not going to interpret poetry the same way you would like a historical book. Um, And so for John, this is some of the background uh, information that we can have on him uh, and some of the things that he said. Uh, Real quick, I'm going to see if I can pull up. Uh, Where did Chris leave? Did he go out? Okay, I'm trying to find. My notes were supposed to be up on this. Do you know? I'll I'll just go with it. (laughs) We're just going to go. All right. So... um, in the Gospel of John, the background of the hermeneutic of that, or the interpretation, the context, is that in Jesus' teachings in John, uh, they contain very few parables that are well known in the other Gospel, and he, Jesus, teaches in much longer speeches. Um, what I mean by this is that, so in um, Luke, we hear about the Good Samaritan, and uh, you know, it was a, it's a parable. Uh, here in John, he's more specific, so like the Samaritan woman, he gives a specific example, an action that happened, or a, a real-life moment, not just a parable. Uh, another thing is that Jesus is the incarnate word of God. No other New Testament witness places the incarnation at the center of its theological world quite the same way that John does. And so in the other New Testament books, like Luke and Matthew and things like that, they're writing to a specific audience, uh, where John, uh, a specific audience with a specific reason in mind. John's reason is he's trying to get the point across that, like, he isn't just, Christ is not just God. He's not just man. He didn't just appear in the incarnation, but he has been for all time. And so the Torah and things that you followed, the written word, literally resides in him and came from him. He's the complete incarnation of God, of man, and the word. And so he really pushes towards Towards that. Um, the authorship of John is unknown, and that's something a lot of people don't actually know. Um, it's an, anom- an, anonym- an anonymous writer, anomaly, uh, see an enemy, but uh, it's an anonymous writer. Um, but the author seems, seems to suggest that what is important is not their identity or their authorship, rather, is the relationship to Jesus and the community around it. Um, and I think that's a really cool um, just premise of how we should be pursuing life. So the author was so concerned on um, just getting the point across of what's actually happening here. Are you focused on Jesus or are you focusing on um, what authority I have in writing about Jesus? Are you focused on what he did in the community around him or are you focused on just that I possibly was a disciple? So he re- the author, he or she, really pushes towards the aspect of finding your identi- identity in Christ rather than them um, and focusing on Christ and focusing on the community around you. 
Um, John is more general in storytelling. Um, so I have the Jews uh, and less specific about titles. And what I mean by the Jews is that in other books like Matthew and Mark and Luke, the other Gospels, um, you'll hear like Pharisee and Sadducee titles are given. Um, and John, he's not very specific in that manner. He's more general of just saying the Jews in general or the Gentiles in general. He doesn't use specifics very often. And so that's, that's a cool thing to notice is since he doesn't use specifics very often, when he does, uh, it's important to be like, why is he being specific about that? Nicodemus is a prime example. He gives a name. So there's, a, there's an intent as to why he gives name. Um, and so he also uses a lot of wordplay. Uh, he or she, the writer, uses a lot of wordplay, imagery, irony, and metaphor, um, which I love. Me being a musician and liking poetry and stuff like that, I love that a lot of times in John, many of the words have double meaning or dual meaning. It's not just um, what we would just take away by reading it initially. Um, and so we're going to read um, through the entire thing, and I actually put it up there this time, Brent, so it's all good to go. Um, and so we're going to read through the passage before we even dive into it, and then um, I want to refresh us on what we talked about last week, and then I'm going to go into continuing what we preached on, um, or what we'll be preaching on today. Chris, real quick, how do I um, pull up my notes on Proclaim? I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, because like, I thought it was that one, and I just would like to have them just in case. I, I, I figured, Creed, thank you. Notes, there it is. Thank you, sir. All right. So, <laughs> we're going to start reading in John. Thank you, Chris. John chapter 4, verses 4 through 14, and then we're going to continue through all the way through 42. Um, starts like this. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to the Samaritan city called Sychar. This is Jesus. Near the plot of the ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by the journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about noon. Remember I said about pay attention to the specifics? John, um, or the author of John, says it's about noon. He's giving you a setting, and there's, there's reason for that. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, uh, If you knew the gift of God and who, is it, and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than the ancestors Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drink from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, and those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them become a spring of water gushing up into eternal life. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that, I may, so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming up here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come back. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where the people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on the mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship, where you, do not, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, 
I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then, his, his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with the woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see the man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They then left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have no food to eat, that you, or I have the food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to him, said to them, My food is to do with the will of the one who sent me, and to complete his work. Do not say, Four months more, then comes the harvest. But I tell you, look around, and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. Verse 36. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering the fruit of eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not not what you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have not entered into that labor, and now you have entered into that labor. Many Samaritans from the city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. That's another important thing, this idea of two, numerology and, and Hebrew culture. Uh, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that it is truly the Savior of the world. So, naturally, I was uh, very excited about the new episode of Dragon Ball Z that came out last night. So, my, since we were going back and talking about what happened last week, I thought about the last time on Dragon Ball Z. Uh, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> No, no, and it, it'll, it'll end after this sermon. So, <laughs> but, um, but last time, uh, what we had is we went through John chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And what we had there is we had two conversations that are taking place, Jesus and the disciples and Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And this even applies for today's passage, which we'll be going through as well. Um, there's also a conflict that we talked about, the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, both thought they had the right cultic center of their religion. And what I mean by that is Jacob's well, the Samaritans thought that was the proper place of worship, um, or the, this mountain that Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman on, um, where the Jews believed that Jerusalem was their sacred place of worship. And I thought about that even today, how we do that even in, within our own churches, within our own culture. I mean, uh, we have this sanctuary upstairs, and then, but we're down here in this fellowship hall. The idea that we need to be focused on Christ and focused on what he's teaching, not necessarily the specific spot that we're in. And this is what Jesus points the Samaritan woman to as well. There's also, we talked about last week, the practicality and the theology of what Jesus was doing here. Um, The shortest distance is a straight line, Judea to Galilee, but Jesus makes it it more than that. What I mean by that he made it more than that is like where they currently were, the fastest way to get to Galilee would have been to go through Samaria. Practical. Practical. However, Jesus does more than just that. He breaks the boundaries of the elected and the rejected, of man and woman, and allows himself to witness in a practical manner, theological. He is also arguably ignoring or potentially calling out the cultural norms at the same time. Uh, and so we have that Jesus is going about his ministry, doing, the way, doing it the way that he normally would, or just walking through life. Uh, and he decides to go through um, Samaria to get to Galilee. Uh, and to... A lot of people, their culture, that was like, well, why would a Jew spend time with the Samaritans? Why would he talk to them? Because they believe things doctrinally differently. It'd be kind of like, um, I'd say probably about 10, 15 years ago, there was, I feel like there's more of a discrepancy between evangelicals and Catholics. Like, there was like this 
at least in my family or where I was from, um, is that, uh, or I shouldn't say my family, but the culture from where I was from, that Catholics weren't Christians and evangelicals were. Like there was like this discrepancy was there. So it's kind of like that is that there's these doctrinal difference where they're just like, well, this is where I believe this is the place to worship. And the Jews were like, well, this is where I believe is the place to worship. And so that was just the, practic- the practicality of the culture that was going on. And Jesus still just walked through it and said, okay, this is the shortest distance for me to get where I need to go. I'm going to go through it. But as he was going through it and living practically, he engages with this woman and has this conversation with this woman and allows a practical moment of his life to be something theological. And I think about that even with our lives. Like, how often are we not going to an area of town because it's not the safe part of town? Or we're not going to this area because maybe there's Muslims there and we don't believe what they believe. And Jesus is saying, forget that nonsense. Like, you need to go where God is calling you to go, even if that means that's not the safest area or if that's not the place that is most comfortable for you. And as you're living practically, even in your workplace, as you're living practically, are you open to the idea that maybe a theological moment could happen? Maybe a moment where God could build a relationship and where you both could be centered around Christ. In this instance, it's a lot easier because Christ is literally there, um, but he's also poured out his spirit and it dwells in us so that we can have these moments as well. You just got to be open and aware to it. Um, there's a lot of wordplay here as well um, with water uh, and titles and setting, day as opposed to night. And so an example of this would be, so right now we're reading in John 4. Um, in John 3, uh, the author uses water uh, as a metaphor, names, Nicode- names Nicodemus, and places Nicodemus, a man of religious authority, at night. But here we have a contrast of an unnamed woman, a woman that is Samaritan, not Jewish, um, and she's in the daytime. And what time of the day? Noon, or around noon. So the time that the sun is the highest. And so what John, or the author, is trying to do here is he's trying to paint this, this contrast as the person that Jesus should have got along with, and the person that should have got along with Jesus, who was questioning Jesus, came about at night to symbolize that he was ashamed that Christ was the only person that could bring about light into the darkness. But here, in this instance, it's the brightest time of the day, this idea that this woman, who was, it didn't even matter if she had a name or not. She had no authority. That's kind of what the author's trying to say, is that she didn't have the authority of what Nicodemus had. She believed something different in terms of theology and doctrine than what Jesus did. But yet, there's this favor and this moment that happens where they both understand each other, where the Samaritan woman and Christ understand each other. And the author is really trying to paint that contrast. The other thing is to consider that in chapter 1 of John, we hear about water with John the Baptist. Chapter 2 of John, we hear about water and the first miracle that we see. Chapter 3, we hear about Nicodemus. Chapter 4, we have this well. This idea of water just keeps going around as a... I think it was a man that was a man. No, it was Rebecca that said like it's kind of a flowing theme, and I was like, yeah, yeah, that's good. But this this idea that uh, there's a <laughs> yeah, I knew Blade would love it. But there's a there's double meaning that's happening here. Is both does does the water, for instance, the first miracle, does the water being turned to wine provide wine for the wedding feast? Absolutely. In the same sense, Christ is trying to symbolize that the water that the Jewish leaders thought cleansed their hands and purified them need to be purified. And how do you purify? With alcohol. He purified what they thought to be clean. It was a double meaning. With the baptism, the second birth, and being cleansed and stuff like that, this is what he has with Nicodemus. It's a double meaning. Um, it, it just continues all the way through. And so even here, with the Samaritan woman, we hear that, like, um, you know, he says, well, I'll give you living water. And her response is of a practical one, of just like, okay, if you're going to give me living water and I never have to come up here again, that's awesome. And he's like, no, 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 it's more than that. You know, and so this double meeting happens again. So the author is very intentional about making sure that you're catching on that, 
hey, you know, pay attention. It's not just water that you drink, but it's something that transforms you and um, will cleanse you and is something more than just a physical need. you like this next one, James. So, we have Be Transformed, the Samaritan Super Saiyan. So, <laughs> but I did that because, you know, like I said, I was super hyped about Dragon Ball Z and all that stuff. And uh, when they get stronger, they change forms. So I thought that was a cool... Maybe I'm the only one who thought that was cool. But uh, I thought it was cool. Yeah. Thank. No, dude, it's Goku, man. No, Gogeta's got red hair. Don't make me rebuke you. No. <laughs> but, so, uh, we're going to be continuing with the sermon. So this is part two. Uh, and uh, I have that because this is what happens here in this moment with this woman at the well and Jesus is there's a transformation that happens, that her previous understandings are transformed to see in a way that Christ has uh, directed her. So in verses 21 through 24, uh, Jesus redirects the woman's comments from the present to the future. Neither the Samaritan mountain or the Jerusalem will be the place of worship, but instead Christ instructs the woman to form worship that reflects and is shaped by the character of God. And I think this is important. Think about us. We, to some degree, we grow up with a bias. To some degree, we grow up with a, a background or a culture or a habitat that's going to influence how we view things, for, the, for good or for bad. You know, maybe we've had instances of harm happen to us, so naturally when we're out in public, we're a little more defensive. We're looking for situations to go bad. Maybe we just had a really good life, or we just are more of a free-spirited person where we just, we just don't care. We don't pay attention to what's going on. We just live, we're just living, you know? And, you know, that, that, that could be it as well. But what Christ does here is this woman grew up as a Samaritan. She believed these things. She would have believed some of the Jewish principles that the Jews would have believed. But yet, um, her theology was off. But what Christ does is he doesn't even just correct her theology. He doesn't just correct, like, her place of worship, this mountain, this well. He corrects it and takes it further, he takes it to a future sense of saying that, like, it's not just this well. Like, get, get your focus off this well, and let's get the focus off of Jerusalem. It's not about that. It's, it's more about whom that you worship and why are you doing this worship. And more importantly, he says, and regardless of your situation now, in the future, none of that's going to matter. You know, and to what's kind of the age where Christ just reigns and he returns, none of that's going to matter. All that's going to be present before us is Christ. And our focus is going to be on Christ. So he's trying to get her to have that focus here and now, not just um, deal with the situation that's going on around her or maybe just having her views changed a little bit. Uh, In verses 25 through 26, we have that Jesus fulfills the woman's messianic expectations whilst transcending them at the same time. And so kind of similar to verses 21 through 24 is that she says, well, the Messiah is the Christ and he'll be this and stuff like that. Um, But the NRSV and the NIV translations play down the boldness of Jesus' remark by supplying the predicate he for the I am saying that is not present in the Greek. Um, And so I love the NRSV, but this is one of the times where I think the translation isn't the best translation. Um, When we have in verse 26, it says he instead of the I am. Uh, And the reason why it's important is that when Jesus speaks the I am here in verse 26, he's making an explicit connection with the divine name found in Exodus 3.14. Jesus thus speaks with an absolute I am here with no predicate in order to identify himself as the one whom God has known. This also confirms the prologue of John. The word was with God, and the word was God, therefore, forget, for, therefore fulfilling this woman's expectations and transcending them. And so what I mean by this is Christ is intentionally saying, this Messiah that you talk about, I am that, but I'm even more so than that. Uh, and he takes it further. And, and John, the writer, um, or whoever is the writer, does this by having that whole circular 
um, or all John kind of works together. That Jesus is also saying that I am God. I'm not just a part of the Father, or I'm not just, I didn't just come from the Father, but I'm just as much part of the Trinity as the Father is and as the Spirit is. And the Word literally resides in me. So the words that you are speaking, you know, are you this Messiah? He's saying, I, I'm the one that even gave you that belief to, to begin with. I'm the one that gave the words to speaking of the potential Messiah, and I am He. He's using that, uh, the I am statement, which is a very profound and strong statement to make. Because um, if you know, even with culture as well, to have name is to have ownership. This is why when, but when they asked, you know, or when the burning bush, and he says, who is this? And he says, I am. He's, what he's saying is that you have no authority over me. You have no power to even declare my name. And so for Jesus to sit there and say, so that culture would have known that. And so for Jesus to say to this woman, literally, I am, she's going to make that connection and know that this is the same God you know, and she's going to know that this is not just the Messiah in the sense of somebody just coming, but it's, it's actually God. It's not just a, a prophet later on. It's, it's God himself who is the Messiah, and this Jesus is God. In verses 27 through 30, we have uh, the disciples' reactions um, to Jesus is similar to the woman's initial response. Shocked that Jesus would violate social, convention, social conventions, but unlike the woman, uh, the disciples keep their questions to themselves. I think this is an interesting way is that we have in the beginning, um, we actually talking about this a little little bit, or Chris was talking about this a little bit in um, our Sunday school this morning. In the beginning, we have this encounter of the disciples and the woman at the well. And at the end, we have the disciples and the woman at the well. Um, But this idea of how they both engage. And so the woman participates in conversation with Christ, which is against the, the social norms at that time. So people looking around have been like, that's not right. Why are you doing that? And they would recognize he's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Now, more importantly, that he's a rabbi and a man talking to a woman. Uh, and so there's so many cultural things that were happening here that were against what people accepted. And so that's all going on. And so, but she still has a conversation with him. And Jesus just says, you know, forget that. You know, he's going to have that conversation as well. He's going to not allow the culture to define good relationship. He's not going to allow a culture to define whom can be talked to about Jesus or whom can have the authority to preach and profess his name. And then the disciples who have been walking with Jesus that are men, that are Jewish, you know, that everything culturally would have accepted say nothing. And I think this is important is that, you know, in our culture today, are we like the Samaritan woman? where we are willing to speak up for the injustices that are going around us, not just saying that, you know, we're going to think about them, or because it talks about these are the thoughts going on in the disciples' heads, that they didn't say this and they didn't say that, but they didn't speak up or say anything. They didn't allow Christ to challenge their views, where this woman allowed that to happen. So John, or the author here, is intentionally trying to set this up of showing that, say, these disciples still haven't learned. They still haven't got it, but this woman recognized who Christ was, and she began to, you know, be transformed by having that conversation with him. So next one I called the disciples in their orbit confusion because I love SpongeBob and I think of Patrick and that's how I felt like they kind of were. They're just like, uh, what's going on here? And so in verses 31 through 38, uh, Jesus' con- conversation with the disciples follows a similar pattern to his conversation with the woman, as I said a little bit ago. It opens with a dialogue that revolves around misunderstanding, followed by Jesus offering them a new way of thinking. It also seems to point the disciples to the future, so like the woman, pointing them to the future, when they will be sent, so in the Great Commission. However, within this passage's context, it would seem to also suggest that the Samaritan woman is one of the examples of the others from, whom, from whose work the disciples would benefit. And this is one of the things that I never picked up on before when I read this passage, that going back through it, it just like hit me, and I was like, this is really, really cool, is that he's talking about the harvest, and Christ is talking about the others that will come before you and stuff like that. 
Christ is using this woman as an example of what the disciples will do later on in the Great Commission. Because what does she go and do? Uh, She goes back to her village. She evangelizes to the entire village. The village then comes to see Christ. And then what does the village do? They say, well, first we believed your testimony, but now we have a relationship with this Jesus that it's beyond your testimony. Like, this woman right now is being given the authority of Christ to go and proclaim that message to all of her village. And the disciples are still, like, you know, standing there in awe with their orbit confusion because they're not even doing that yet. And so she, at least least it seems that the author is trying to suggest suggest here that this woman has the authority to proclaim the gospel in the way that she did and is setting the examples even before the apostles would go out and do that as well. And so in verses 39 and 42, the conclusion of this, um, the Samaritan woman, like John the Baptist, is a witness um, who brings people to faith in Jesus. And like John the Baptist, the woman's witness diminishes in importance when the Samaritans have their own experience with Jesus. And what I mean by that is that you hear about how the Samaritans invite Jesus to stay with them. To do so is to enter into relationship with him. This is the model of our faith in the fourth gospel. The witness that leads to Jesus is replaced by one's own experience of Jesus. Also, much like John the Baptist, water is used as a metaphor to bring understandings to the Samaritans and even to us today. This idea that this moment uh, at the well is a woman that has good understanding of her culture, has good understanding of the theology and the doctrine that she's grown up with. And then Jesus comes along with a different doctrine, even from a different culture. Arguably not even doctrine, he's just, he's God, so he's perfect, he knows truth. But he comes and he, and he meets and they, they have this moment. It's this iconic sight of Jacob's well. And this woman had the humility and the, the ability to surrender what she knew or what she believed to be true about the Messiah. She was able to surrender that so Christ could actually renew and transform her mind into what that properly looked like. And all I can think about is today if we would allow it to happen. So often we, we say we have these feelings or these inklings that uh, this is how we are raised or this is what I believe about justice. This is what I believe about humanitarian rights. This is what I believe about all this, this, and that. And there's probably some good reason for believing it. There's probably some good sourcing for believing it. But do we have the humility to sit there and say that maybe I'm wrong or maybe I'm interpreting this incorrectly? But more importantly, are you taking it to Christ and allowing him to define whom he is and what his theology is, and what his beliefs are, and who we ought to be, or are we saying, well, this is the Jesus I want you to be? It's important that we allow God to transform us, and we don't do it the other way around. around. We don't try to transform Christ. And so uh, I have this. uh, I'm going to post the video up in a little bit, but I made a video to kind of give like a more hyperbolic metaphor of uh, what uh, I think the author here is trying to do. But I want us to walk away with the idea that Uh, We need to be transformed by Scripture in Christ. We need to allow Christ to give us ears to hear and eyes to see, not merely pursue and listen to what we personally find to be pleasing. The Samaritan woman at the well surrendered what she knew culturally, theologically, physically, and mentally to follow Christ. I mean, literally, she went up there for water physically, and what does it talk about? She left that cistern there and just went to proclaim the Word of God. Like, she gave up and surrendered all that she knew to go proclaim Christ. Are we willing to do the same, though? Are we able to acknowledge our biases and shortcomings when Christ reveals himself to us? Or do we make him fit the model of what we like and already agree with? Psychologically, we tend to view Christ as a perfect version of ourselves. Um, but our man-made Christ will always fall short of the glory of whom Christ says he is and is. So allow Christ to be who he says he is. Allow the image or the idea of what we try to make him to be erased. And he will give you more truth and more peace than anything that we could ever create. And so this next thing, like I said, it's, it's meant to be hyperbolic. Um, and there, there's a purpose for it. So let me go to that real quick. It should play. 
Single flow. So everyone does it. People don't have to endure the things that I love. But a big metalhead, and I love metal music and stuff like that. But not everybody likes that. Not everybody can hear what's going on there. But when you listen to that first one, you could pick up on the melody. You could pick up on what was being played. You may have actually enjoyed it. The next one, you may have been like, I'm never going to listen to something like that. I hate stuff like that. But what's happening here, and I thought this would be a good metaphor, as John would use, is that the melody that's being played is the exact same melody. What's going on is the exact same thing. But sometimes our biases only allow us to listen to one or the other. We're not open to seeing the truth. We're only open to seeing what we want to listen to or what we want to believe. So I don't want to say like Meshuggah because that's don't be like Meshuggah. But uh, like, like, <laughs> like the analogy, though, is be open to the idea that maybe there's culturally things that you're not comfortable with, but they might actually be professing the same melody. You know, maybe there's some denominations that you're just like, well, I've never really pursued Catholicism or thought about Eastern Orthodoxy or I thought about the Friends denomination or Quakers or Nazarene. Maybe you've already written them off and say that they're wrong, but be like the Samaritan woman and allow Christ to be the person that determines your views, not just your biases and how you've been raised. So that's my hope for us. And uh, Chris, are you going to be doing communion? I will. Okay. Do you have it all? Rip- okay. <laughs> all right, so I'll pray real quick, and then uh, Chris is going to come up and lead us into communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you just that we aren't bound by ourselves, Lord, that we aren't bound just by our culture around us, Lord, that you give us hope and a future to come, Lord. So like the woman at the well, Lord, not only can you transform our current situations, Lord, but you point us to a future time that even after we are gone, that you transcend and that there's peace and that there's hope regardless of situations going on, Lord. And right now it is a hard time. There's so much violence happening. There's so many unknowns of how we should deal with these things, Lord. And I pray that, if anything, the church is extending love, grace, peace, and mercy, Lord, and that we'd walk with humility, that we'd uphold justice, but in a way that shows your love, Lord, not, not wrath, not anger, but something that truly demonstrates you. Lord, I pray that you'd bless the words that Chris speaks during this time of communion, Lord. I pray that you'd bless this time together, that it, even though it is something to do in remembrance of you, Lord, that we truly acknowledge that your body was broken, that you were poured out for us, and that we are now that body now, Lord. So may we be joined together as the body, and may we surrender all that we have to you. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>